What's up, everybody? This is FTW with Ahmad Khan. I'm your host, Ahmad Khan, and joining me today on this Another League Goes Down Under edition is Fox Sports Australia's Max Lawton. Hey, how you doing? And later on, we'll have Joseph Valamel Franco to talk San Francisco Shock winning the Overwatch League Grand Finals for the second consecutive year. But first, OPL. Last week, Wright Games announced that it was dissolving the Oceanic Pro League. In a statement, Wright said that it, quote, does not believe the market is currently able to support the league in its current form. Essentially, that it wasn't attracting the kind of viewership necessary. Players in the Oceanic region will now be pulled together with the LCS in North America, meaning an Australian player will not take up an import slot. Riot Games will also hold a qualifying tournament for Oceanic players for both MSI and Worlds 2021. So Max, how big of a blow is this to Oceanic esports? I mean, it's massive. It's something you could sort of see coming just based on the way the landscape looks right now, but at the same time, it's incredibly disappointing because... Riot's League was really the main organized league. We have a few tournaments led by ESL, but still over here to have that sort of organized competition from a big organization, it's rare here. And and we need it because the realistic fact is teams can't play teams from other regions unless they're traveling. And that in itself is impossible when budgets are so small. You know, this is something that I think is lost on a lot of people because I think like the ubiquity of the internet, at least in Europe, or the United States and how easy it is to kind of communicate is lost on just how, like, just the physical distance between, you know, Australia and even, like, Los Angeles. I remember one time I was interviewing a bunch of uh, Splatoon players, competitive Splatoon players, um, and they were talking about just, how, like, how difficult it is to play with very high pings, because it's not just, like, the distance, it's the actual internet infrastructure quality. Uh, can you go into some of that? Yeah, I mean, we're a nation of bad internet. We're very big and we're very spread out. It's sort of the US to an extreme. Uh, we've got a little over 20 million people, mostly on the eastern seaboard, but even then, it's uh, an hour flight, say, San Fran to LA to get from Melbourne to Sydney, the two big cities, and that's where all the uh, OPL teams were based, either in Melbourne or Sydney. And then a lot of people online, you'll see on Reddit, people saying, oh, why can't they practice with teams in Asia, even in Japan? It's not that far. Well, it's still a 10-hour flight. Getting anywhere takes forever from here, and and that means the ping makes it almost impossible to realistically scrim with any opposing teams. What you'll see is when Australian or New Zealand teams do go overseas, they'll have to practice and base there and scrim for two, three weeks beforehand, and they'll spend most of that time just figuring out how to catch up to the standard of overseas. So the problem's twofold. We can have the talent, but if they never get to play against that level of opposition anyway then they're falling behind when they do get their overseas chances and then they perform poorly and then they don't get as many chances next time. So it's a cycle that just Mm. repeats. And, you know, when it comes to the OPL, I mean, what was kind of viewership and attention like in in the region? Was it, I mean, was it as poor as maybe Riot Games is suggesting? I think it's good for Australian standards, but certainly not compared to global standards. I think the peak viewership was around 50k for the most recent LPL split. So it's okay, and they get some sponsors, and they have some guys who are relatively big in the gaming scene in here uh, being on the broadcasts, but even still, it's just so hard to get mainstream attention. Uh, The the main way it happens is from sporting organizations buying teams. Uh, You had Legacy, who did so well, relatively speaking, at Worlds this year. They're owned by an Australian rules football team, Adelaide. And that in itself has given them some mainstream attention. But even then, that's that's a story that mainstream media does. The, well, look at these crazy video gamers. They're making money playing video games. Isn't that crazy? That's the best you can get in many, uh, many cases. So it's always difficult for them. And while the league has a bit of a foothold, it can only get so far. So then is Riot's assertion kind of true in that 
the region just hasn't developed yet for a vibrant esports market. Yeah, it's a realistic view. It's something that they could fund it if they wanted to, I'm sure. They have the money from other ways, but to invest in OCE, it's an investment and it's a long-term plan. You can sort of see the potential because we are a very intense market. I mean, when you have tournaments here, when you have big overseas events, the CS events, uh, the IEM Sydney's have been the biggest ones. We have a really intense crowd and we love our esports, but the problem is you have to spend so much money to try and get return on that investment and so much time. And if you're not going to be able to fly these teams overseas to get them more experience, they're not going to improve and the talent's not going to get good enough to be up to that level. No, I mean, you do bring up a good point that the region is super competitive in sports, right? Whether it be cricket, rugby, football. Uh, and, you know, to, so I, from what I'm hearing is that that also translates into esports locally. I mean, what can, you know, the region do at a local level to try to spur up more and more interest? Yeah, I think it's about having real, a groundswell of competition at that lower level. And that's what you need because the, the problem that the OPL had in a lot of ways was they, they actually cut some of the funding coming into this year. And that made it hard because you can't be an esports player full-time here unless you're based outside of Australia. So getting funding to that level where players can commit full-time instead of just being university students who do it as a side hobby would really help. And then it's just more competitions at local level and getting better and working together as a community. Otherwise, it's hard to see how we break out of the pure tyranny of distance. It's the biggest problem that will never, ever be solved. And until someone figures out faster planes or cheaper travel. I don't know how they do that. But, you know, there's this thing that, you know, I think of a a country like South Korea, uh, which also has a relatively small population, but has very good infrastructure and then can produce some very high quality talent. So is this, I mean, to what extent is this an issue of, you know, a country just being small or it just not being able to produce enough talent? Uh, I, I think it is. There is an infrastructure problem in Australia. I think about 10 years ago, the government tried to invest in a big internet fix, basically, to install stuff. And to do so, they used the exact same wiring that we've been using for decades because they didn't want to spend too much money. Uh, So that was a big problem. And so to this day, Australia has bad internet compared to what you would think from a first world country. And so on a very basic level, we don't have the technology. We just don't have the investment. We don't have the history of doing all of that stuff. And that's a cultural thing as much as anything, certainly compared to South Korea and regions like that. So, yeah, it could happen, but it's not something that's ingrained in us to be technologically advanced. I don't know why, it just happens that it is. I mean, you know, illustrate for me kind of what the ping might be if, you know, people are competing between Auckland and Melbourne. Auckland and Melbourne might be okay. Even then, it's still not going to be great. But if you're going from any other region to Australia, you're looking at 200 plus in most cases. It's realistically impossible Uh, and again nothing you can do unless there's investment in the technology to get that fixed i mean so is there any rumbling from you know politicians maybe younger politicians that are moving up kind of the the ladder and trying to really fund better internet infrastructure in the country not at the moment i don't think uh obviously the priorities of all the governments have changed at the moment over the last year, but even then, there's a there's a bit of growth from some left-wing politicians that you'd follow, but for the most part, I think most people don't even recognise as a problem, never mind how to fix it. And then, you know, I, I think a lot of focus is obviously given to Australia and New Zealand, but what about some of the other, you know, Oceania countries, whether it be like Fiji or Samoa? Um, is there any kind of rumbling for esports in those countries? Not a huge amount. I think it's still 
very much a growing thing, but it's nowhere near where it would be in, say, Southeast Asia. I'm not sure whether that's a cultural thing, a technological thing, or a combination of the two. It's just not a huge amount going on outside of Australia and New Zealand. Mm. And then, you know, what have the reactions been from the players? Yeah, I mean, they're understandably upset. And and the weird part was Riot saying that they're still going to hold tournaments so that we can qualify to MSI and Worlds next year. And the question being, how exactly are teams going to be good enough to do well when you consider that we have a league and they still don't make it into groups? You know, uh, Legacy have said they're going to commit to next year and other teams, I believe, are going to also commit to next year. But the realistic scenario is they're going to have to be organising games against each other unless there's another tournament scene that pops up. Otherwise, they're going to be nowhere near the level when they do get those chances. And it's going to be even less funded than it has been in years gone by. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to imagine that, you know, just two teams that play in two separate... Or a couple of teams that just play in two separate cities, that they'll be able to have kind of the competitive practice to really take on, you know, the top teams in the world. Yeah, no, it's it's not realistic. It's it's scrims at best for them. So I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has, has there ever been discussions within these teams to essentially relocate to, let's say, Los Angeles or even like a Seoul and just scram and practice out of there and then I guess fly back for Australian competitions was that ever kind of or was that just seen as too expensive and too unrealistic for the OPL teams I think it's been too unrealistic we've had teams do that uh the most notable being in CS with the Renegades team that's become 100 Thieves they're being based in the US for a few years now and doing quite well because of it you've also had Fnatic in uh, Rainbow Six Siege that have done so well in the Australian scene and done quite well on the global stage they've moved to Japan and based themselves over there so that's the realistic plan. If you want to be taken seriously on a global stage, you have to get out of Australia while sort of still representing them. And, and that's the depressing reality. So, you know, with, if, if League of Legends was just, you know, uh, had, had its leg cut off in in the Oceania region. So, I mean, what are the other esports that are still kind of ho- hold, holding up the region? Yeah, it's, it's those teams that do well internationally that we can say, hey, they're from here almost. So Siege, we're doing reasonably well. CS, we do quite well per capita but league was probably the biggest because of the OPL because of the official status having that league and having the trip to worlds that it credited the league with uh, other than that the Dota scene is not very big and other scenes are you know they have their their fans and they have their players that do quite well but it's still very difficult to get over there without the funding and then that makes it so difficult to compete on the global level yeah I can imagine that uh, games especially like fighting games where you need like virtually no ping, where you have to essentially be playing next to the person. Uh, maybe online that doesn't work, but I mean, locally, is there kind of like good scenes coming up where people are practicing and, you know, are creating some kind of real warriors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Couch Warriors guys do fantastic work on a local level, and we have some pretty big fighting tournaments around here, and that and that's great to see. And, and you go to that at uh, PAX, they have some fantastic tournaments when we have our local version of PAX, and, and that can be great. And we get players coming from around the world to fight in Australia and get some global recognition, and that's fantastic. That's, that's the way it can work when you have just those one-player esports, and if you're going over to Vegas for a big tournament or whatever it may be, that can work. So the, the less expense that's needed, the easier it can become. And then I guess last question, I mean, what do you think 2021 is going to look like for esports in the region? I think it's going to be similar to what it's looked like the last few years. We've had our teams that do quite well when they get their chances, but there are fewer and fewer chances being given to these teams. There are talented players. We see them going over and competing in LCS and Overwatch League and other competitions like that, but... If they can't get scouted, if they can't show off their skills, then they can't get the opportunities in the first place. So the fewer and fewer chances we get, the fewer and fewer chances come after that 
and after that, then the cycle repeats. Well, it's something I'll have to keep an eye on. Thank you so much for jumping on, Max. No worries. And now I'm joined by Joseph Valamel Franco. Last weekend, the San Francisco Shock returned to the Overwatch League Grand Finals to take the tournament over Seoul Dynasty. This is only the third season for the Overwatch League, and the Shock have already taken two of its titles. Not only that, 2019 MVP Jay Sinatra Wan left the Shock earlier this year to pursue Valorant. Joseph, you wrote a piece earlier this year for GG Recon in which you said the Overwatch League would never see a team like the SF Shock ever again. It seemed a little hyperbolic at the time, given that the game is only in its third season, but with two consecutive championships, clearly they're doing something right. What do you think that is? Well, it's a number of things. Um, this is this is one of the most dominant collections of talent from the top to the bottom, whether it be the coaching staff down to the bench players. Um, you, know, you have somebody as critically acclaimed as Rascal kind of sitting on the bench becoming, you know, uh, one of the most prolific champions in the game um what they're doing right um in a, in a hyperbolic i think this is more hyperbolic than the article this is like this is everything they do they do it all they they don't have like a weak link they seemingly can leap over any obstacle that is put in front of them and and yes this sounds cliche but it's true like this is it it, it seems you know, flowery and colorful to say art in motion, but again, like we won't see another team like this. And then to your point, yeah, this is the third year of the Overwatch League, but we've had, you know, years of Overwatch before this, and we haven't seen teams like this. We've thought we've seen teams like this with, you know, Team Envy early in the game's development, and we've we thought we saw this in South Korea with Lunatic High, but that obviously proved to be a little uh short for the world or at least in the the grand scheme of history, but the shock really don't seem challenged. Uh, it, you, when you can throw money at the best players that money can buy, like the Philadelphia Fusion, and still come up short. Shanghai Dragons, much in the same way, you know, attempting something similar. But you really can't capture whatever it is that makes the shock the shock, and I'm still trying to grasp what that is. Well, you know, one thing I wanted to expand upon is that, like you said, the lose these, you know, high caliber players, but still are able to perform. And I look at, you know, coach Park Krusty Dehi, and, you know, he was there for the 2019 season and for the 2020 season. You know, he's kind of this lodestar for the team, that kind of immovable object that has been there. I mean, how critical is uh, he as coaching talent to the success of not not only the shock today, but moving forward. Oh, this is this is the architect. This is you know not not the player, but like the 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 kind of role of the builder for this team. Um, what what really kind of is is funny and kind of ironic. Um, to kind of go back to season one where we first got introduced to Krusty and and Stryker, funnily enough, on the Boston Uprising, a team that historically, now looking at them in year three, is historically bad. You know, poor even like. Long, long-term bad play. They had a perfect stage under the tutelage of Krusty, under the 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 careful, you know, DPS acery that Striker brings to this roster. They let those players go. They kind of recoalesce on the shock, and two championships are born from that. It's 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 really no surprise to me that that Krusty is doing as well as he is. It's it's a really it's a shame that, uh, you know it didn't work out on Boston because they had, you know, the golden, the golden egg, the golden geese as uh sideshow put it 
um, so aptly one of the commentators. But yeah, this is this is Paramount moving forward. He's already building for the future and has said as much with their Japanese American player Tayo. Um, yeah, it it he's the best coach on the best team. Uh, again, one of the what will be a legend um, in the game, and if he continues on the trajectory, he might just become a legend in the overall kind of esports scape. Yeah, you know, I think the other interesting thing about the shock is that their willingness to bring on players who are under the you know the age to become competitive, but using them you know in that uh, incubator stage to continue to develop them. I mean, that, that's how we got a Sinatra and. You know, based on, I mean, are, is, is that something that they're still continuing to do that they did in 2020 or they're going to do in 2021? It, it's definitely unclear what the future plans are for the shock um, in a less age restriction way or age restricted way. Um, I, I think they definitely are always looking forward. And I think that's kind of what Tayo represents um, this new player looking at somebody who you know, somebody like Twilight from the Vancouver Titans of last year, you know, coming onto this team because of their pedigree, because of, you know, the coaching staff's success and the long-term success of this team and this roster. Um, they, they always have an eye for the future. And you have to kind of give that not only just to Krusty, but to the coaching staff at large. I, I You look at the people who uh, are the, the former shock alumni that are, you know, scattered amongst the league in terms of coaching staff. You've got, you know, a big success from 9K who helped the 2019 Shock win, um, now leading the Paris Eternal to uh, an unprecedented kind of revitalization of the brand and and that kind of roster, um, a, a team that really nobody saw um, or, or very few people rather thought that they were going to do well and they knocked it out of the park, won a you know a monthly tournament and and had a you know surprising season, very good season. So this is. As much as it is crusty, it's it's everybody he surrounds himself with. It's everybody who, you know, he hires. It's it's the shock to kind of take the chance and pick him up um, in season one. Um, but in terms of like moving forward in that plan, it's it's really it really remains to be seen. You know, I think enough not enough credit is being given to NRG Esports and Andy Miller because I think one thing that set the shock apart at the formation of the Overwatch League was how much mm. money they were willing to drop on players, right? And yeah. to really flex that, hey, we're not hiding salaries and we're, you know, really showing that, hey, we believe in our talent and we're willing to con- compensate them justly. Uh, and, you know, that's translated to, I assume, happy players, but also them being able to bring on talent that feels that, you know, they have their back or that energy has their back. You know, how much is the, I guess, the corporate end of Shock also a part of this team's success? You, I, 100% you have to give, you know, the, the greater org a lot of credit. Um, in terms of just tangible things that, like, either are repeated or, you know, shown, they all the players seem to be, you know, taken care of, um, which is is definitely something that has to be said you know it, it, you have to give them credit where credit's due um they uh, a, a wise man kind of imparted this wisdom on me once and saying you know it, it's the the people who choose the gatekeepers to uh those are the people you should be kind of holding on to and crediting and, it, and it's very obvious that andy miller has built a not only a strong brand but a strong team around him to be able to you know, create this and, and understand and identify the talent as it comes up. 
and pick up somebody like Krusty and have Krusty bring over Striker and and snag Twilight and create this pedigree of winners so that on the, in the, you know the next generation of team you know strives to one day play for the shock you know they 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 really have done a great job uh and and you're right they they really don't see a lot of credit and and they deserve you know let's talk about the mvp really quick so namju striker kwan you know he's he's the mvp this year last year it went to sinatra when comparing the two players you know where do you feel that striker stands definitely as as one of the um most dominant players at least and and some of these final these final four matches during the grand final weekend um you know we we go back again to kind of like season one and we look at you know the talk of you know striker being the greatest tracer player and the best tracer player and that has returned in 2020 this is you know he's been a consistent dps threat over and over and over on different heroes he you know is he the most flexible is he somebody like a prophet that remains to be seen and that's not what's asked of him but he is you know this this person who you can just point in a direction if that direction is open if the metagame allows for him to just run amok and and that's really what we saw one of the big weaknesses that soul dynasty had in this grand final was their kind of one-dimensional style of play we saw that challenged a little bit with them picking genji but Striker being able to come out, be one of the world-class Tracer players, be one of the world-class Hanzo, you know, mains, pick all of these different heroes and and really dominate. It's it was it was it was something special. Mm. Well, and let's end off on this question. You know, where if we're looking at the Shocker, the trajectory that the Shocker going into, right? If they win, you know, a third championship, they will essentially be compared to like Michael Jordan's Bulls at this point, right? And when it comes to that. Other teams are essentially not playing the game of Overwatch or basketball, whatever analogy you choose, but now they're playing the game of how do we beat this specific team or how do we build a roster to beat this specific team. Going into 2021, which team do you think has or could develop that team that can take down the shock? I, I've, at this point, it, it, maybe it's the, the recency bias talking. Maybe it's the, um, the sheer amount of talent that we've seen this season kind of coalesce on separate teams, whether that be the Shanghai Dragons or the Philadelphia Fusion. Um, I, I really don't know if there is anybody, at least that has the right fit currently. Um, you know, we're, we're going into the offseason. Roster mania is, is bound to be crazy and and you know we're gonna see some insane swaps and trades and buyouts and all these these crazy things so maybe there's a team on the horizon that we just haven't met yet that that can rival you know crusty's san francisco shock but as of currently with a team like the philadelphia fusion who really could carry from any role a team like the shanghai dragons who not only mimics that but has the depth to, to have 12 different players, all world-class. I, 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 I really don't know. It's, 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 it's going to be a tough task. During the stream on YouTube and it was exclusive to YouTube this year. I mean, what was peak viewership like? It was definitely um, more than I expected. Um, I, I, I believe, you know, I had talked to somebody and they, you know, asked if they, you know, we would get like six digits. And I think we definitely surpassed six digits um, mm. well above. I, I last time I had checked, it was like 120,000, which, you know, for the regular season viewership, depending on the time is, is a significant increase. Granted, it's like grand final. So there has to be, you know, some leeway given there or some, you know, 
uh, sure, yeah. number correction, but um, I'd say it was respectable. I think it was fine. I, uh, hopefully this this brings people in. This is our first big grand final. The last two were kind of duds. I think, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed that people really kind of fell in love with the game after this match. And, and you know, we're, we're on to a, a greener pasture in 2021, hopefully. Yeah, I'm waiting for the numbers to come out from Activision Blizzard because last year, you know, I mean... The, the they were saying it was about 1.2 million viewers across you know all platforms, including the ABC stream. I don't think there was a television broadcast this year, so you know I I assume that it's probably going to be down because you're on YouTube, which is a small. Right. Uh, I mean, it's a huge platform, obviously, but still not a premier destination for esports, at least in North America, like Twitches. <laughs> but uh, you know, who knows? Maybe it, like killed over in Asia. But with that, you know, we'll have to catch up with you next time. Thank you Sounds so much good. for jumping on. Thank you. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan. If you like the show, please rate, subscribe, and share. Your support will help our show grow. For full transcripts, head on over to ftwamad.com. To follow Max Lawton and all the work he's doing over at Fox Sports Australia, you can find him at Max Lawton on Twitter. That's M-A-X-L-A-U-G-H-T-O-N. To follow Joseph and his writings about the Overwatch League, you can find him at Volamel on Twitter. To follow me and my writing over at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and elsewhere, you can find me at Imad on Twitter. Annie Pay is our producer. If you have any questions, you can reach her at Pay underscore Annie on Twitter. And our researcher is Ron Lyons. With that, we'll catch you guys next week.